The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. We're drawn to learn more about the Civil War, most of us, by the drama of the battlefield, the decisions of great leaders, the importance of the causes and consequences. But it's easy to forget when reading about Antietam or Chickamauga that life went on for the millions of Americans not in the armies, lives that were touched by the war, sometimes directly, though we're also part of the whole canvas of the 19th century. We'll look at the war today from the perspective of life in a Massachusetts city with Earl F. Mulderink III, author of New Bedford's Civil War, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the University of North Carolina system. But, as always, not representing the system, not speaking for the College of Arts and Sciences, Department of History, or anyone else involved, certainly not the Board of Governors or General Administration, nobody at all, just me. And likewise, our guest will do the same as we talk today about the Civil War. It is a overcast day in uh, April 2013, if you're downloading this some weeks later, wondering when it's coming to you. And it is a uh, cloudy, windy day, very nice, uh, good day for uh, high school soccer. Later in the day, I'll go watch my daughter's team, the rampants of J.H. Rose, as they compete against their crosstown rival after a heartbreaking uh I'll call it a, a one-to-one defeat last night. Uh, the, the girls were winning one nothing, with less than a minute to go when the other team got a fluky sort of goal that tied it up, and they went to overtime and couldn't score. So the Rampants are going to try to get it back tonight. Uh, 
And I mention this because we'll talk a little bit later today about uh, memory of the Civil War and how its ramifications continue on into the 21st century. The local high school team, the uh, uh, at least the, the high school to which my daughters uh, attended or, or currently attend, uh, is, has as a mascot the rampant, which is actually an adjective, not a noun, uh, but their symbol is of a lion rampant. And I thought, uh, mistakenly it turns out, that everybody knows as common knowledge the descriptors used in heraldry to describe the positions of, of animals, uh, rampant or dormant and so on, uh, so that shields can be described by heralds one to another uh, accurately recorded, uh, as well as all the colors, the vert and jewels and all the other names that are used for colors and shields. It turns out, um, just history geeks know this, and not even all of us, uh, that the rampant is actually a mystery to many people in Greenville. <clears throat> and to friends of mine, a colleague uh, at the Chicago Tribune wrote in his blog last week about the rampant and how the, the oddity of the name, and that most schools don't have it. But what ties it to our topic today is that it was it originated some, I guess, 40-some years ago now in the Civil Rights era when Greenville, North Carolina's major high schools, one black and one white, were integrated and combined to a single school. And given the choice of deciding which colors they would preserve, blue or green, they chose both, so the rampants were blue and green. And they had to choose a mascot, and it was between the Rams or the Panthers. And hence they became the Rampants. Uh, I thought that was an extraordinarily clever solution to the problem and gives them a unique and actually quite dignified and uh, intellectual sort of mascot. But uh, it turns out not everybody knows what rampant even means. Oh, well. Uh, now you do, uh, although listeners to the show surely did already. But we'll move on from there to talk about Civil War history and uh, and memory today. Next week, uh, just to give a quick preview before we start, uh, Michael Ballard will join us talking about his new book, Grant at Vicksburg, The General and the Siege, uh, one of many books Professor Ballard has written over the years. And you can find out about that and other things uh, connected with the show from the most important of all websites, www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date, and where you can donate to civilwartr at aol.com and send uh, funds this way that I will use to buy books or tickets for the soccer game or whatever else I please. It's not a tax-deductible donation. I am not a charity, uh, but that doesn't stop me from soliciting your money. I will, however, send you a copy of All for the Regiment if you want to learn about the Army of the Ohio early in the war or Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. And I'm happy to sign those if you're interested if you send a contribution of $25 or more this way, it's uh, my pleasure to do that. And I'm running out gradually. I never thought I would see the day of uh, copies of those books. So if you are interested uh, in getting a, a signed copy, don't hesitate too long uh, or they'll be gone. Well, today we talk about uh, an element of the war that, as I said in the introduction, we, we tend not to 
uh, think about all the time, the, the war back home, and in this case, a particular home, a particular city, uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, uh, described in a book with the appropriate title, New Bedford's Civil War. The author is Earl F. Muldering III. Uh, Professor Muldering, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Well, thank you for uh, joining me on, on the show. I'm, I'm delighted to have you here. I uh, I don't think you and I have crossed paths anywhere along the the uh, conference trail anywhere, but uh, I did live in Franklin, Massachusetts, for a number of years. Not uh-huh. not way too far from from New Bedford. Uh, so let me start with with your origins. Are are you from New Bedford? Uh, oh no, I'm writing about this particular town. Well, actually, I, I grew up in Chicago and um, ended up going to high school in Chicago and to college in the Chicago area and, and went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And uh, I, I chose New Bedford as a topic in graduate school because of my interest in looking at the respective black and Irish communities in that city during the mid-19th century. So um, I've never spent... Uh, a uh, huge amount of time in New Bedford, apart from research trips, but I've always wanted to spend more time there because I think it's a fascinating city. So you came about this from the, the, the social historian aspect as opposed to the Civil War aspect? Yeah, exactly. I was really interested in, in the racial and ethnic competition between Irish immigrants and native-born blacks in the North in the in the mid-19th century. And so I, I happened to find that New Bedford had a nearly equal uh, population of of each community in 1860, and with that, I, I spent more time uh, exploring New Bedford's history. I knew, of course, that it had been the whaling center. I knew that Frederick Douglass had escaped a slave from slavery uh, to there in 1838. So I knew that there were some really interesting aspects of New Bedford's history. But it was only after a while that I started to explore and and really decide to pursue the Civil War angle in more detail. Well, the, the you cite in your introduction or in the notes to it uh, the famous uh, work by Maris Vinovskis uh, from I guess of the 1970s now called uh, "Have Social Historians Lost the Civil War," where he argued that uh, the Civil War was all, the only people writing about it were writing about battles and campaigns and uh, the drums and trumpets and the, the new military history was already underway, but he, he thought there was a lot of a lot more to be done with the Civil War era. Uh, so, right. That, that was, was, there, was there some point? I guess when, when you were you're thinking about New Bedford, 19th century. Was there some point where you said the war is really the central experience of these people? <laughs> That's what I need to look at. Right. Right. It was pretty much uh, during my first research trip to New Bedford. I realized that that was really the untold story was the experiences of black and white residents from New Bedford during the Civil War and how the war impacted the economy and the political economy of the city. So yes, it, it took me a while to get to that point, but my initial reason for looking at New Bedford was the uh, the respective size uh, of the of the Irish and black uh, communities, but the Civil War became much more compelling once I, I went there and learned more about the city. And uh, Vinovskis was actually, I think, quite uh, correct, and that article was published about 1990-91, and uh, and he, I think, was absolutely right that much of the really good quantitative history that had been done of urban areas back, oh, in the late 1970s to the 1980s, most of it ignored the Civil War. We had these massive 
quantitative compilations of data from cities like Philadelphia that looked at the 1850, 60, 70, and 80 censuses, but often ignored the war. So he was uh, right on, I think, in his analysis and critique, and it helped to refashion my focus towards uh, the Civil War in more detail. Uh, I, I'm taking a moment to pause and looking quickly about the date, and I see your right toward a social history of the American Civil War was published in 1990, but I'm going to bet 10 or 11 dollars that that original <laughs> essay came out a lot earlier, because I seem to recall <laughs> reading it almost as, maybe as undergrad uh, uh-huh. at the University of Michigan uh, in the 70s. Uh, Good. But uh, the, the the initial essay that, that, that triggered right. that. Right. Uh, but you know, it's been going on for a long time. Another important uh, event that took place just before uh, 1990 was the movie Glory, 1989. And I've, I've heard you talk on this, uh, this show about the movie Glory, and it, it's a a very uh, important movie in so many respects, but I think that also helped to inspire me to think more directly about focusing on the men and families associated with the 54th Massachusetts Colored Infantry. And I have, of course, as you know, an entire chapter examining those men's experiences because they were in a model regiment, and one of the most significant black heroes of the Civil War was, in fact, a New Bedford resident named William Carney. So that movie, Glory, plus uh, the Benovskis article and, and subsequent works, I think, helped to keep me uh, inspired on, on finishing this book. Well, I, I, it, it seems like a really inspired choice of a, a topic to do this on, because I... Uh, because New Bedford has all these connections, because you've got the 54th, or, or at least a company from the 54th Massachusetts and these other uh, aspects of, of the city. Well, let's talk about the city itself, then, to, to get our listeners grounded here. Uh, New Bedford was the, the whaling capital of America before the Civil War. Was it... Uh, was it typical of other northern cities in other ways was it different um what uh what what can you tell us about uh, how new bedford looked at that time well i i don't think new bedford was all that typical because of its wealth and its whaling based economy um there were about 22,000 people there in, in 1860 and just prior to the late 1850s new bedford had a really robust economy, and it was described by some contemporaries as the richest city in the country, at least on a per capita basis. Some of the wealthiest Americans at the time were, in fact, the Quaker whaling merchants from New Bedford. So it was a city with a healthy, vital maritime economy, but that economy was showing signs of strain and loss even before the Civil War began. But what also made New Bedford unique and not typical of many northern cities is that it did have a sizable black population, about 1,500 black residents in, in the 1850 census, and they had a fair measure of visibility and status that was not found in other northern cities. In fact, only Philadelphia had a higher percentage of black residents than New Bedford compared with all other northern cities. So it, it's not typical, and I, I don't try to make that argument. You know, why why did New Bedford attract uh, a large African-American population, do you think? I think partly it was just the networks of uh, escape or movement or mobility from the south in that uh, black uh, fugitives could perhaps use waterborne routes from places like Norfolk, Virginia, towards uh, New Bedford. I also think that uh, it was uh, because of the Quaker um, predominance there among the political and business elite, 
um, they helped establish New Bedford as a haven or a safe place for fugitives. And so word of mouth and, and letters and just the activities of anti-slavery activists, I think, helped to make it a congenial place that became known, especially among blacks who could escape from the upper uh, southern slave states of Virginia and nearby. And as you point out, the most famous of those is certainly Frederick Douglass. Oh, definitely. And in fact, I, I can recall reading his narrative back in college, and uh, I always found it to be a very compelling book, and I still use it in some of my classes here at Southern Utah University. And so his story of finding freedom and uh, just becoming a, a literate and outspoken anti-slavery activist always kind of resonated with me. And so partly my desire to focus on New Beverly was to learn a little bit more about his experiences, but also how they might have spoken to those of other black Americans who lived there at the time. So the it's, the city is then unusual. You've got the, the Quaker element. You've got uh, a large black population. And whaling is is not uh, – I mean, it, it's fairly limited. There are not a lot of other seafaring towns that are dedicated to whaling like New Bedford. Did, did they have a sense that whaling might not be the long-term future uh, economically for the city? Well, definitely. Uh, there were people who were outspoken in suggesting that the whaling oligarch should find other uh, opportunities. In fact, the Wamsutta textile factory uh, opened in the uh, late 1840s, and that kind of suggested to some that textile manufacturing might be the new ticket to wealth or success. Um, during the war itself, one of the more outspoken city leaders was the Reverend William Potter, who in 1863 gave a couple of trenchant sermons that were widely reprinted in the city in which he suggested that New Bedford and its whaling-based economy uh, was in a tailspin before the war began and that they had no choice but to shift towards uh, manufacturing or other pursuits. So there were people who, who recognized that whaling wasn't in a tailspin. And also they paid close attention to the... Uh, exploration, discovery, processing of oil that had begun uh, significantly in 1859. Uh, the New Bedford newspapers and uh, some city records point to uh, them paying very close attention to this, this emerging petroleum industry. Which was going to completely replace whale oil uh, shortly. Correct. Well, we're going to take a short break ourselves now. We will come back, talk more about New Bedford and how it responded to the Civil War. Our guest today is Earl Muldering III. My name is Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking with Earl F. Muldering III, professor of history at Southern Utah University and author of New Bedford's Civil War. We've been talking about the town of New Bedford, Massachusetts, whaling capital of antebellum America. Uh, Earl, before we go farther, you mentioned you uh, raised in Chicago, went to school in Wisconsin. Uh, how did you end up at Southern Utah? <laughs> and I, I think I can guess the answer. Uh, yeah, the a, answer is uh, that I was offered a tenure-track job here back in 1995, and uh, here I remain. And I was hired in part to teach not just the U.S. history surveys, but to teach African-American history. And so it was a great opportunity for me to teach in my areas of interest and expertise. And I've since um, come to enjoy a pretty good career here as a tenured full professor and uh, have had a lot of opportunities for administrative and service uh, 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 opportunities as well. So it's been a, a pretty good run here at uh, Southern Utah University, and we are Utah's public liberal arts and sciences university, and we're doing a lot of good things here. So it's worked out well. Well, that, that is good to hear. It's uh, it's always a challenging uh, road to make it in academia. So it's oh. always good to hear the success stories. Well, thank you. Uh, when we we left off talking about New Bedford before the war, and it's uh, Economic status as as the whaling capital, but, but the potential decline of that industry looming. Uh, when the war begins in 1861, how did New Bedford respond? Well, I have a an entire chapter that looks at the uh, the mobilization on the home front, and in this sense, I want to emphasize that New Bedford was typical, I think, of many other northern communities in that. There's this initial burst of enthusiasm and excitement and uh, willingness to spend money to raise the troops and provide for the Union uh, defense. So uh, New Bedford responds with great alacrity and great enthusiasm, and the, the Quaker leadership uh, sets aside any pacifist concerns to fully support the militarization needed for the uh, Union effort. In fact, I devote a little attention to uh, the, the New Bedford City Guards who were dispatched to Norfolk, Virginia with a 90-day uh, regiment, and they were among the first northern troops to touch on southern soil. And so that became a real source of pride for the people of New Bedford, that they were quick to rally to the flag and to uh, provide the funds and manpower needed to sustain the war effort. It makes sense that... New Bedford would respond that way, given the the number of African Americans and and uh, the Quakers who would oppose slavery. But counterbalancing that, you have the the textile interests that you mentioned, and uh, you know, commercial cities like New York certainly had a strong, uh, eventual Copperhead element that were opposed to the war. Uh, did New Bedford develop a, an anti-war movement? You know, I could not uncover evidence of that, and I did look for it, and. 
I mentioned earlier Wamsutta, which depended upon uh, fiber and cotton from southern uh, sources, and I, I never found any strong indications of contention over the supply of cotton. Uh, there was in New Bedford in July of 1863 fears of a draft riot, much like that of New York City's, and yet New Bedford was basically clamped down with the equivalent of martial law, and those rumors or threats never came to pass. So that was the only and most visible indication of anti-war sentiment, um, but it, it came to naught. The so, uh, ruling elite was also yeah. strongly Republican, and so there were some conservatives, perhaps more of a Whiggish bent than a Democratic bent, but I think the, the, the ruling elites in New Bedford were pretty uh, successful in maintaining a pro-war, pro-Union, pro-Lincoln, and pro-emancipation policy. So, uh, again, I could not find clear-cut evidence of uh, any strong anti-war sentiment or pockets apart from that threatened draft riot. So the uh, you mentioned a company of ninety day men w- dashed off and and got down to Virginia right away. What what else did New Bern uh, New Bern is in North Carolina? What else did New Bedford uh, provide by way of volunteers? Well, I spent a full chapter looking at uh, at least a composite portrait of the uh, two thousand or so men from New Bedford who served uh, mostly in the army, and they supplied men for. Uh, uh, 90-day regiments and for uh, nine-month regiments and for three years regiments. And altogether, I was able to find information on about 2,000 of these veterans. And on top of that, New Bedford was credited with over 1,100 naval enlistments. So throughout the war and especially afterwards, the New Bedford officials were really proud to crow about how they had supplied an excess of over 1,100 men to the, the Union cause. Most of the Army enlistees served in state units, Massachusetts units. About 95% of them did. So um, they, they were pretty uh, effective in mobilizing men to serve in uh, the, the uh, Massachusetts units. Where do you find information? What kind of sources did you use to uh, dig these people up? Well, I, <laughs> I used a variety of, <laughs> a variety of sources. Uh, I, they included the official records of the War of the Rebellion, um, the uh, Massachusetts soldiers and sailors in the Civil War. I did some uh, comparisons of that source with uh, U.S. Census material from 1860. I, I used um, what was called the Army and Navy Register, which was a compilation of all the military enlistees that New Bedford officials credited to their city during the war. So I used a variety of local, state, and federal uh, resources to try to paint a, a, a composite portrait of these men. The, there's the, the classic assertion that the Civil War was uh, a rich man's war but a poor man's fight. The idea, uh, and, and you can still hear it today on the Internet, various places, that, that the, the war is fought by the, the, the working poor, the working class at least. Uh, did you find that in New Bedford's volunteers? Well, the, the initial waves of volunteers were... Uh, from some of the merchant and professional classes, and, and over time and rather quickly, the uh, enlistment shifts to men from skilled and semi-skilled and even farm and farm laboring uh, classes. So I do see a shift, but I, I tend to agree with people like James McPherson who suggest that uh, this Union Army was a very representative one. 
that all classes were represented to some degree. And uh, I do go into some detail, especially in some of my uh, end notes about the composition of New Bedford's forces vis-a-vis those of the Union generally. But I, I don't find substantial evidence to suggest that it was, in fact, a, a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Um, I, I just think it was that the Union Army was a socially representative uh, group of citizen soldiers. In fact, I have a chapter in which I try to emphasize that point. So these uh, did did the draft eventually come to New Bedford? You mentioned there there was a threat of a draft riot, but nothing materialized. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, but, g- given given that they over, that they overfilled their quota when, once you count the Navy uh, enlistments, did they actually have to draft anyone from there? Well. New Bedford was home to the uh, Provost Marshal General's office, and so it was the site of military recruitment and the Board of Enrollments from early 1863 through 1865. And so uh, I, I draw upon some of the um, National Archives records, especially Record Group 110, to look at the, the Provost Marshal General's operations, which were very extensive, very intensive, and very successful. So. The draft was processed in New Bedford, even if the city itself was not subject to fulfilling its quota after July of 1864. Um, so it was a daily, um, the Board of Enrollments met daily throughout uh, the latter two years of the war, and uh, they maintained a steady drumbeat of uh, excitement, I suppose, uh, about making sure that uh, the first district, at least, supplied its quota to the Union cause. Where did these men end up? You mentioned uh, they end up in Massachusetts regiments, but there's no single New Bedford regiment, uh, as I understand. Uh, They ended up in, in, did they enlist in in whole companies that went into different regiments? Right. That's what I I tried to look at in some detail was the, the predominantly New Bedford companies within specific units. So, for example, I look at the 38th Massachusetts, which was headed by William Logan Rodman, the most prominent casualty of the war. Um, I, I looked at uh, representative uh, companies and units in an effort to try to, again, come up with a composite portrait of, of these these soldiers. So I looked at, for example, the 3rd Massachusetts, the 18th, the 23rd, the 28th, the 47th, and on and on. <laughs> um, I also looked at a couple of... Um, artillery units, and I tried to also look at uh, a cavalry unit just to get a a kind of a cross sample of uh, the men as they served in different units over time. Um, So you're right, there was no one New Bedford unit, but there were several that were quite predominantly from New Bedford, um, including the 3rd Massachusetts and the, the 38th Massachusetts. Where did they serve? They were all over, um, and I have some capsule summaries of these units in one of the chapters, and they were all over um, all the major battles. Um, Fredericksburg was the most uh, deadly day for uh, New Bedford soldiers. In fact, more died on that day than at any other battle or day of the war. But uh, so they were they were all over. <laughs> That's a, that was an interesting statistic. I, as I recall, it was a, a dozen or so men were killed at Fredericksburg. It was it was single digit. It, um, single digit. So, in a way, that struck me almost more forcefully than the the multi thousand casualty numbers that we normally associate with a battle like Fredericksburg, because then you take it back to New Bedford, a city 
of uh, it must have been under a hundred thousand still at oh, that time. Yeah, uh, uh, probably uh, less than twenty five thousand during the 20, war year. So twenty five thousand here in Greenville, North Carolina, we've got you know three times that. Uh, depending if the football stadium is full, we've got more than that. And if if ten men died in one day, everybody in town would know at least one of them, uh, or, or know somebody who knew somebody. Right. So, so that that number really brings home what this meant to New Bedford to lose. You think, well, ten men out of Fredericksburg, big deal, but uh, it is a big deal. Well, especially if they were in units that had companies with sizable enlistments of men from the same community. I'm just looking right now where I, I just mentioned, for example, that in, in the first year of war, nine men died. In 1862, 47 died. In 1863, 76 men. And then in 1864, 93 men died in battle or of disease. And so you've got this ever-escalating pattern of casualties, but it's true that Fredericksburg was uh, uh, the worst day in terms of having six men die um, in December of 1862, but a number also died at uh, Cold Harbor and at Gettysburg, and so, uh, and also Fort Wagner, um, Fort Wagner, where the 54th became nationally known and uh, certainly respected for their valor, uh, they were hit hard by the siege there uh, outside of Charleston. Well, that that really does bring home the uh, uh, the cost of the war when it starts to get reduced to these individual numbers, right? And we we remember just how small the country was in comparison to today, right? Uh, well, the fifty fourth Massachusetts is, is is you you focus on uh, Company C as you point out was recruited in New Bedford. Uh, let's talk about them. One, uh, well. I mean, as you said, the movie Glory helped direct uh, everybody's attention to black participation in the Civil War. Uh, did the movie, after you had done the research and written this book, uh, what do you now think, going back to the movie, as to how it portrays the, the story of the 54th? I think the movie is very dramatic, and I think it serves an important purpose in helping Americans understand the role played by black soldiers in ending the war and ending slave or and ending slavery for that matter, but there are so many uh, problems with the movie as a source of historical information. And you know, I'm sure that uh, there's really only one historical figure with the regiment, and that's Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. And the rest of the characters are fictitious characters. And I think, in my opinion, um, the real life people who served in that regiment are often more compelling than those portrayed in the movie. And I mentioned earlier William Carney, who was the hero at Fort Wagner and became lauded by the governor of Massachusetts and by the Secretary of War. And he served as a, a hero long after the war uh, until he died uh, in the early 1900s. So in my mind, the movie could have done a better job of just reflecting the real-life men who served in that unit. But the movie does have powerful scenes, some of them fabricated, but... It, it served a very valuable purpose in reminding, or at least informing Americans, that there were 190,000 black men who fought for the Union cause, and uh, for a long time we had suffered from this historical amnesia about the role of blacks in the Civil War. In in the uh, uh, oh, talking about some of those dramatic incidents, uh, uh, th there are certainly connections to what actually happened. Uh, one can remember the scene of. 
Colonel Shaw, uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, tearing up his pay envelope rather than uh, because his men were not going to accept unequal pay. Uh, and, but you show in the book that there was indeed uh, a pay issue, and the 54th had to fight a long time over this. Well, that, that's one of my complaints about Glory, the movie, is that it doesn't take the story all the way through the conclusion. And Fort Wagner was a military defeat, although it was also a political and symbolic victory for black soldiers. But consider that those men fought until really September of 1864 without accepting a single cent of federal pay. They refused to accept unequal uh, pay. And so uh, they they would continue to fight and in some cases die um, without taking uh, anything but equal pay. So to me, that's one of the dramatic stories about the 54th and the 55th that uh, I try to uh, at least detail in, in one of my chapters. It, the uh, You also point out that New Bedford as a city had a, a relatively progressive uh, city government and tried to uh, create a, what we would, I guess, call today a, a social safety net for the poor, uh, the uh, the disabled, uh, the unemployed. And so the families of the men of the 54th, since they're not getting any pay at all, must have needed that kind of help. Well, I, I did look uh, at the pre-war patterns of generosity or what I call enlightened governance by mostly Quaker white men who really tried to advance the cause of black equality and citizenship in New Bedford and in the nation. During the war itself, I looked at overseers of the poor records, trying to find if there were examples of 54th uh, soldiers or wives or children or widows who might have needed uh, charity assistance. And I did find some examples of it, but I didn't find as much of a um, a pattern of penury as I thought I might find initially, but I, I did look into local welfare records, and I also looked at some state military records, and then I also dealt eventually into Civil War military pension files, which I was able to uh, find 25 pension files for the uh, of the 33 uh, black men associated with the Company C who were from New Bedford, and so those pension files. Uh, often have a lot of disparate information, but they can also be quite a, a treasure for historical nuggets and information that you cannot find in any other source. And as you know, I tried to show how black soldiers, just like white soldiers, viewed those pensions as being part of the contractual bond that they had created by fighting for and sacrificing them, themselves with their lives for the Union cause. The the, the pension records really are a, a gold mine. Uh and and uh, more and more scholars are, are tapping into those and finding out things. We're going to take another short break and come back and talk more about New Bedford in the Civil War. Uh, our guest today, Earl F. Muldrink III, is the author of New Bedford Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We're talking today about New Bedford, Massachusetts and the Civil War. Our guest is Earl F. Muldering III. He is the author of New Bedford's Civil War. It's part of the uh, Fordham University Press's series, The North's Civil War. Uh, there are a number of excellent uh, books in that series and uh, highly recommended. We talked uh, in, in the first two segments about New Bedford before and during the war. Uh, we talked about the men who went and fought with regiments like the 38th Massachusetts and Company C of the 54th Massachusetts, the uh, African-American regiment. There were also, uh, of course, New Bedford being being the whaling capital, you would expect a, a nautical contribution. And uh, from there, we get the remarkable story of the Stone Fleet. Uh, for our listeners who have heard of it but don't quite remember, uh, Earl, could you, what was the Stone Fleet? Well, there were actually two Stone Fleets that were outfitted with stones or with rocks, uh, mostly in uh, New England ports like New London and New Bedford, and they set sail uh, for Charleston, Savannah, in the uh, late fall of 1861, and the goal was to plug up those important Confederate port cities. And the Stone Fleets um, provided a bustle of activity on the wars of New Bedford, but in the end, these uh, Stone Fleets were kind of a disaster, or at least they didn't work successfully to blockade the harbors, but they did kind of point to the need for a naval blockade to prevent the South from importing uh, its war material or, for that matter, from exporting cotton. So their primary significance was probably just to generate a sense of active patriotism in New Bedford and in the North. And I will say that the New York Times and Harper's both um, placed the stone fleets uh, on uh, uh, front page coverage. So they were an important but short-lived uh, and dismal failure, I would say. Well, it, it, it's, uh, I suppose, not a new or an old thing in military history. It made me think of the mulberries, the uh, artificial harbors that the, the mm-hmm. Allies used in World War II at D-Day, that they mm-hmm. brought over ships and sank them to create uh, 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 harbors where there were none to, to get troops from England across to France. And here you have the same thing, sinking ships to try to change to block a channel or to to change the harbor. The thing that struck me reading about that was 
the level of it was that either somebody must have thought these really aren't going to work or there was a level of ruthlessness that you would not expect because the assumption is you want to reunite the country, that Lincoln's goal is to uh, bring the country back together, and you wouldn't want to permanently disable major ports uh, by sealing them off from the ocean. So there must have been maybe a technology to, to dredge up the, the, the stones afterwards. Well, uh, some of the uh, naval officers involved actually predicted that the uh, prevailing tides and currents would just eventually destroy whatever sunken ships were there. And also, the Lincoln administration took pains to reassure the British that this was a temporary wartime measure and would not in any way prevent future trade between uh, Great Britain and, and those ports. So um, there was a, a diplomatic uh, angle to it, along with the military and naval uh, aspects. But uh, in the end, um, these were dismal failures from uh, from the standpoint of actually blockading those those ports. Well, that's uh, interesting. So they didn't, uh, they may not have even been, they weren't intended to be permanent, and, and they, right. they didn't even succeed right. really temporarily. In, in right. stopping they did, on the home front, they did provide some necessary income and uh, work opportunities in New Bedford and elsewhere. So they generated um, you know, some, some revenue and uh, also, I think, helped to inspire people in New Bedford to remain motivated about the war effort. Um, and, of course, by aiming at Charleston, the goal here was to hit the heart of the Confederacy and the city and the state that first uh, declared secession. Um, they really aimed to uh, have the uh, the ports blocked on December 20th, which would have been the first anniversary of South Carolina's succession. So um, there were some symbolic aspects of this that went beyond the practical ones. And I guess the other thing is there must have been a, a some subconscious recognition about the days of whaling being numbered to have this many ships available that you can just fill with rocks and sink and not miss them. Oh, most definitely. In fact, these ships were described as... Uh, is queer fitted um, ships that really had had long outlived their usefulness, so that uh, there was recognition at home in New Bedford that uh, it was just time to find some other use for these ships because whaling might not be profitable any longer. You probably know that Herman Melville wrote a lament to the uh, the Stone Fleet as well, and uh, uh, so this was a again kind of a, a short term, but. Uh, nationally recognized event in 1861 in the early uh, winter of 1862. Now, Herman Melville spent some time in New Bedford, uh, but the, uh, the talking about the demise of whaling, you mentioned that the Confederate raiders had something to do with that as well. Oh, of course, and I, I spend uh, part of a, a chapter talking about the... Um, the Alabama, the Florida, and the Shenandoah that inflicted massive damage to the whaling fleet generally and to New Bedford more specifically. Um, in fact, the, the Shenandoah uh, destroyed uh, a number of ships in June of 1865 after the Civil War had ended, and this was a source of consternation and financial ruin to a number of uh, New Bedford whaling merchants. So um, that, too, is part of the story for New Bedford, that their whaling fleet is being harassed and destroyed by these uh, piratical vessels, as they were called. And um, some of the New Bedford uh, people were uh, always railing against the lack of success against these Confederate privateers. 
Well, the uh, the the end of whaling or the the demise. I mean, it takes some decades yet. Uh, it certainly gets accelerated then in the Civil War. But one of the interesting things that your book does is, is begins with antebellum New Bedfords and, and sets up the scene, and then it, it goes on beyond the end of the war, which I think is going to be one of the things we're going to see more of in Civil War scholarship is a breakdown of the periodization and more looking at the war in the context of the 19th century. Uh, you mentioned, for example, the uh, the Arctic disaster of 1871, which uh, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about. Uh, what happened there? Well, I just kind of mentioned that in passing, but uh, a number of ships, I think almost two dozen ships, were caught in the ice in the Arctic, and it led to uh, uh, the destruction of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of vessels and cargo. So that just kind of was an exclamation point to the Quaker whaling merchants New Bedford that this was not going to work for much longer. Yet, yet New Bedford did retain its primacy in this declining industry through the end of the uh, 19th century. But I, I, I did want in this book to go beyond the warriors of 1861 to 1865. So I do have two chapters that look at the antebellum era, along with several chapters that go in the post-war era, including into the 1890s with attempts to create memories um, and myths of the Civil War. So that that was one of my goals here, was to place the war and New Bedford's role in the war in a much longer uh, period of time and in what I thought was a more complex uh, context. Well, it... it achieves that and it's uh it, it becomes a melancholy story that new bedford starts before the war as this bustling and successful whaling capital uh during the war the it, it overfills its quota of volunteers uh, there's good support for the the veterans and for their families there's a lack of anti-war uh, unrest uh, there's support for african-american participation but the whaling comes and goes, and uh, petroleum wipes out whale oil economically, and the mills thrive. But what does New Bedford look like 10, 15, 20 years after the war? Well, by by 1900, New Bedford is home to 100,000 people, whereas in 1860, there were about 22,000 people. So the population jumps dramatically, and with it, uh, so does textile manufacturing. By 1900, New Bedford is the third largest textile manufacturing center in the country. So that's another unique aspect to New Bedford, that it transitions from the whaling capital to one of the textile production centers. And with that, too, comes a much more diverse population of people drawn from French Canada and from southern and eastern Europe. So it becomes very much an immigrant, industrialized uh, city, uh, rapidly transformed in about a 50-year period. And it, the transformation is is not an easy one. Uh, you you now are going to have industrialization. You're going to have uh, more difficult working conditions for a lot of the workers. Then uh, right. you trace the story up into the 20th century. By 19 by the 1920s, uh, now textiles are in decline. That's absolutely right. As, as you probably know from your your position there in the South, that textile industry moved south in the 1920s and. New Bedford's economy is is one that languishes from the 1920s onward. There's still scallops fishing, but primarily now New Bedford touts itself as a tourist destination. In fact, that's partly why I emphasize in the epilogue the ways in which New Bedford has tried to uh, uh, publicize its its heritage, especially with black history and 
particularly with the 54th Massachusetts Colored Infantry. Uh, New Bedford is now home to a, a national uh, historic park focused on whaling and much of the downtown area that is still in great um, historic um, uh, status. Uh, it, it's a, it's a rec- it's a way to celebrate the 19th century in a way that they could never do through much of the early 20th century. It uh, is it working? Or, or is, yeah. How is New Bedford today? Well, if you visit, especially the downtown historic district, it's it's fascinating. Uh, many of the buildings are have been lovingly restored and put to good use. Um, banks and churches and uh, cobblestone streets uh, all harken back to the the mid 19th century. And plus, many of the private homes there are spectacular uh, mansions that uh, have been also uh, maintained very uh, beautifully. So, the downtown historic district is well worth a visit. And I mention that in my epilogue because, again. <laughs> They're trying to sell themselves as a historic or heritage destination, and it's still possible, I think, to get a sense of what it was like in the 19th century by visiting there today. Well, it definitely sounds like a place uh, worth visiting, and not a place that people would put on their Civil War map initially, if that's the first place, uh, if that's what they were thinking of. Um, so do you... Do you think, then, uh, circling back to where we started, Maris Benofskis, uh it, 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 the answer to his question is no, uh, social historians have not lost the Civil War. I think maybe we're starting to gain the field. Um, uh, and and if, if you look at, particularly at, at studies of other cities and communities during the Civil War, I think we're starting to see the kind of outpouring of community-based studies that we need to uh, answer Benofskis' call or critique. And I, I mentioned in at least my end notes partly in my introduction, some of the books that have been done on New York and uh, Chicago and uh, other northern cities. Um, and so I think especially, too, with the series like the North Civil War, we're starting to see uh, a focus on, on these communities. And obviously the more that we study communities and the social history of them, the, the more composite picture we will have of the Civil War. You mentioned uh, Barbara Gannon's book, The Lawn Cause, in your, your discussion of uh, Union veterans, uh, particularly the, the GAR posts in, in New Bedford. Uh, and she was on the show uh, just a few weeks ago and, and had some enlightening things to say about the integrated nature of the GAR after the war. Uh, and that's, that's another thing you touch on here, that, that uh, the veterans tried to keep alive a certain memory of the war that wasn't always... Uh, that, that varied from what became the national reconciliationist narrative by the right. 20th century. I, I listened to that interview, and I very much like her book, and I agree with her her major points. And but yet in New Bedford, there were separate white and black GAR posts. The black post was impoverished and uh, suffered declining membership, uh, but nonetheless, they were able to maintain their GAR post as long as they had sufficient number of veterans to maintain it. But um, I look at how, in New Bedford, they were home to the first GAR post in Massachusetts, and uh, one of their local uh, veterans and lawyers, Austin Cushman, was the first uh, commander of of the GAR in Massachusetts. So the city itself played a key role in in establishing uh, and maintaining the GAR, and uh, and I, I look at that in some detail. Are you working on uh, another community study or uh, anything else Civil War related? Well, I'm still tidying up some stuff regarding New Bedford that I found of interest but couldn't include in the book. And, for example, I, I still had this desire to do 
some work with digitized maps, and uh, I couldn't get into the book, but I still want to do some of that. There are also a few people from New Bedford that it really intrigued me in New Bed in in the 19th century. And on top of that, I'm still ultimately uh, eager to get back to this idea of Irish and black competition in the 19th century. I still think there's work to be done, uh, not just in New Bedford, but in the in the nation. Uh, more generally, I know you've had Christopher uh, Sim, or Christian Semito on your on your show. Yes, I was just going to mention that, right? And and David Rediger and other people, I think, have kind of advanced our understanding of that that kind of competition or race, racial and ethnic um, antagonism. And I, I still think that's something that I might get back to uh, in a big way. I, I still find that topic very compelling. Well, the uh, this this book, New Bedford's Civil War, is compelling. If you are a Civil War enthusiast who uh, got into it, uh, as I said in the introduction, because of the drama of the battlefield and haven't thought much about where these men came from and what was going on back home, uh, there is no better way to get a, an insight into that uh, in in this really extraordinary place of New Bedford, Massachusetts, with all that makes it unique. Uh, and I, I highly recommend uh, listeners taking a look at New Bedford's Civil War. And Earl, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Take care. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management